If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. As you're turning there, um, let you know we're starting a new series on uh, this morning. The series is called Free on the Book of Romans. I've been uh, a pastor here, I guess, uh, coming up over nine years, coming up on ten years next year, and I've never preached through the book of Romans. And uh, some people have asked, when are you going to preach on the book of Romans? It's a pretty uh, important and significant book. They're all important, but Romans, probably more than any other book, certainly any other in the New Testament, lays out very clearly and methodically the gospel. And so some people have asked, when are you going to preach on Romans? Why haven't you preached on Romans yet? And, you know, we pray through and look at the balanced reading of the Word of God, try and balance uh, some of the Old Testament, some of the New Testament letters with gospels. And, and uh, we really felt like we, it was important to do a, uh, a letter, uh, epistle this year. Um, I probably haven't preached through Romans because every time I read Romans, I feel like, God, I am so unqualified to preach through Romans. And yet we're unqualified to preach any part of God's word, right? And I think that's God's answer to me. You're not qualified, you know, more qualified to preach Obadiah than you are Romans. So what are you worried about? Um, But at the same time, sometimes you read books and you're like, this is so perfect. All I can do is mess it up. I can't add. And yet we're not called to add. We're just called to proclaim and say what God has said. And so we're going to dive into the book of Romans over the next number of months. I'm looking forward to it with you here and also in uh, in Belmont. Uh, They'll be going through that. They're starting that series as well this morning. We're calling it Free. Uh, Free because uh, it is a free invitation of the gospel. Free because it's the gospel that sets us free. And uh, this morning, I'm going to be beginning at picking up in verse 18. Uh, it is not because I think verses 1 through 17 are insignificant. Uh, it is because next week, I will be in Belmont, and Pastor Brian will be here. Uh, and he's going to preach to you verses 1 through 17 when he's here. This is just one of the things that we have done when we started two campuses and we committed to live preaching on both campuses. We knew it was going to strain our resources a little bit. Uh, because, uh, you know, if you do video preaching, it's only one person preparing a sermon every week, and you uh, get some efficiencies that it creates. Uh, we committed not to doing video. Video preaching's fine. We just committed not to do it. We committed to live preaching, so we have two people preparing the same sermon every week, so we try and find some ways to find a little bit of gap and efficiencies. One of the ways we do that is when we switch campuses, uh, we'll do the same sermon. I'll do one in Burlington, and I'll do the same one in Belmont. So if you were planning on visiting Belmont next week, um, maybe you just need to hear the same sermon twice. Uh, But Pastor Brian will uh, preach 1 through 17 here next week. I'm picking up in verse 18. I think he gave me that passage just because it's one of the most difficult passages in the whole book. And Pastor Brian just said, why don't you take that, and I'll take 1 through 17. Um, No, he would have preached it fine. Uh, But uh, but I'm looking forward to getting into that this morning. Let me just give you a little background to the book of Romans, what's going on. Uh, Romans is a letter. So I say book, and we say book, but they're letters in the New Testament. Romans is a letter that the Apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest church planter the world has ever known. So this is like first century A.D. This is uh, Paul, you know, we're talking... 
20, 30 years after the death and resurrection ascension of Jesus, you have Paul planting churches all over the Roman Empire. And he is planting churches in all these major cities throughout the Roman Empire. Perhaps the greatest church planter ever. He goes on missionary journeys. Three missionary journeys that he goes on. This is his, he's on his third missionary journey when he's writing this letter to Rome. He's most likely, as we can, as we can figure, in the city of Corinth. He's there for a few months. It's probably the year 57 AD or thereabouts. And he is writing to Rome, a place he has never been. But he's writing to Christians there. He knows that there are Christians there. He knows some of them because scattered throughout the world, they've been scattered and some have gone to Rome because of the persecution. They've been scattered. Some ended up in Rome, so he knows some people. So when we get to chapter 16, you'll see that he gives a whole list of people to say hello to. Uh, But there's a lot of people he doesn't know. He's never been there, never been to the church. It's a Jewish and a Gentile church, those that are Jews, those that are non-Jews that have come to Christ, and he's writing to both, partly because he's heard that there are problems in the church. And so you'll see that throughout the letter, he addresses both Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers and how they are to relate together. Um, He's writing to them, and he tells them he wants to visit Rome. And he does. He wants to get there. So he's saying, after this missionary journey, my plan is to come to Rome. But I don't really want to go to Rome. His plan is to get to Spain, but he's going to go by way of Rome. Um, Because Paul has planted a church in just about every known Roman city, major city in that world, in that time. And so he says, I want to go someplace where the gospel has not been preached. I don't want to build on someone else's foundation. So I've got to go someplace far. I've got to go to Spain. And so I'm going to go to Spain and preach the gospel there. And when I do, on my way, I'm going to stop at Rome and I want to meet you and you can support me and provide financial support for me for my journey to Spain. They have these very practical concerns, just like missionaries do today. And they come to us looking for support to go to all different countries. Paul did this. He said, I'm going to come to Rome. You can support me and I'll go to Spain and I'll meet you. And and, and I can't wait to preach the gospel in this huge important city of probably about a million people at that time, uh, advanced city for that time. And so what Paul says is, I got to go to Jerusalem first. I'm going to drop off some money. Here's what's been going on. The, the, the church in Jerusalem has been persecuted and they are suffering and they don't have a lot of resources. So what Paul has said in his missionary journeys, look, you guys have benefited spiritually from the faith that came through Jerusalem and you've got some money, you need to bless them physically for the way that you've been fed spiritually. So Paul's been collecting all this money, and he says, now I'm going to bring it to Jerusalem and give it to them as a gift from you, a thank offering. So he does that. He goes to Jerusalem, but he was warned, if you go there, there's going to be persecution, and he was actually warned that he would be arrested, and that's exactly what happened. He gets arrested in Jerusalem for preaching the gospel, And he eventually ultimately makes an appeal to Rome. And he does eventually make it to Rome later on, but as a prisoner. So he never makes it to Spain. He ends up dying and being killed in Rome for his faith. So he does end up making it there eventually, but not maybe in the way that he intended. But uh, as you know, Paul, if you've read any of his letters that he counted that as a blessing and an opportunity to preach the gospel even to the guards who were keeping him prisoner. 
And so that's the story of Paul. So we're about 57 AD. He hasn't been there yet. He plans to go there. The way the letter is uh, designed is like this. The first part of the letter, like much of Paul's letters, is front-loaded with theology, big time. So the beginning of the letter is front-loaded with, here's what you are to believe correctly about God. And then it gets into later in the letter what we would call practical theology much later. Chapter 8, those of you that read Romans, a lot of you, you've got favorite verses from chapter 8. We love chapter 8. We're more than conquerors. All things work together for good. There is therefore no condemnation. I can't wait till we get to chapter 8. But it isn't even really until chapter 12 that we get to the practical theology. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How are you going to live your life? Everything before that is a front-loading of theology. Why is that important to Paul? Because what Paul knows is if you don't know and understand the gospel, then your experience of it is going to be incomplete, shallow, and perhaps even wrong. Because you need to understand what you believe in order to properly experience what you believe. And so Paul's saying, I want to be clear. And in Romans, he takes clearer than any other place, a methodical presentation of the gospel. But here's the challenge. I'm going to be preaching through it. So we're going to take small like chunks of it and we don't have the whole story. So you're missing the whole kind of argument each time. So here's my challenge to you this week. I challenge you this week to read through the entire book or letter of Romans in one sitting at some point this week. I think, in my Bible reading plan, I did not look at it before this morning, I think it's 55 minutes to read through the entire book of Romans. So I challenge you at some point to find 55 minutes in your week, sit down, and read it from beginning to end. Because it is, what is it? 55. 55. 55. Okay, a good memory there. 55 minutes if you read through the entire book uh, in one sitting. And then you get the whole kind of argument and picture of it because we're going to take little chunks of it over the next, I don't remember what we laid this series out in, like four or five months or so it's going to take us to get through the whole, the whole book. All right, so that's my challenge to you. Good, here we go. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, we're going to read 18 to 20, and we're going to get into this. I've got a lot to say in a short amount of time, so I'm going to talk quick, listen quick, and here we go. The wrath of God, let's just stop right there. Some of you have a problem with the text already. I read four words, the wrath of God. And there are many people that would have a problem with the text even before we go even for any further than that. The fact that God or any God would be wrathful in some ways in our day and age seems like an antiquated idea. Something left over from another time and another generation. John Stott pastored uh, over in London, England at All Souls Church for many years said the very mention of God's wrath is calculated nowadays to cause people embarrassment, even incredulity. We don't, we're not comfortable. Just these four words, we have a problem with the wrath of God. You say that to many people today, and that will be the end of the conversation. Stott goes on to say, his wrath is his, this is how he defines it, his wrath is his holy hostility to evil, his refusal to condone it or come to terms with it, his judgment 
upon it. His refusal, his hostility to evil. And here's, here, here's what I think is true and what we often forget when we start off with the wrath of God is we need this. We need this to be true. Because if this is not true, if there is not some holy hostility to evil, then much of the pain that people experience in this world is pointless. That much of the pain of many of the victims of this world is a joke because there is no ultimate justice for them. Because evil is just evil and it's just a tough break and tough luck if that's what happened to you. We need a God who cares about evil. We need a God who comes down against evil ultimately and that there's a judgment and there's justice at some point. Some people will get what justice in this world for difficulties experienced. Some will not. And if there is no just God, then what hope? is there in their pain. So as much as this statement might seem difficult for us, I would say the alternative would be even more frightening, a God that does not care about evil, a God that does not care about wrongs that are done. That that, that alternative is even more frightening. So before you may shut me off, even at these first four words, I encourage you just to keep in mind that at some level, there has to be some dealing with evil and wrath in this world. Romans 1, 18 through 20 says this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. What Paul is saying in this passage is before God, we are all without excuse for not living up to the knowledge that we have of him. You can leave that, leave that scripture up there, John. I'm going to be referring to it a few times. Before God, we are all without excuse for not living up to the knowledge that we have of him. Paul believes that everyone needs the gospel in order to live with God. Everyone needs to be saved. He next anticipates an argument that we will make against this, that many people will rise. Well, Paul, certainly people who may know about good and right and don't do it might need to be saved. But what about other people who don't know any better? What about other people who don't know any better? What about people who have never heard about this God that you are talking about? Paul is anticipating that argument because he's saying that everyone needs the gospel and Paul's anticipating us making an argument. No, Paul, there are some people who don't need the gospel. This was certainly the majority of the society in Paul's day that had never heard about Jesus. I mean, we look at it and we hear Paul and the apostles and we think everybody knew about Jesus. But that was not the case in the Roman world. A million people in Rome, very small enclave of believers. It was growing fast, but it was still a very small percentage. But Paul says that there is a reason that we are all without excuse. And the reason that we are all without excuse is because that everyone has some knowledge of God. He says everyone has some knowledge of God. 
The reason Paul can say that all people are under God's wrath is because everyone has been given some knowledge of God. The question is what, they've, what we do with that. And Paul's argument is going to be that what we do with that is predictable every single time. He says that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine attributes have been revealed. It's a simple argument that gets very complicated in our world. It's a simple argument Paul's making. He's simply saying, you can look around at creation and just simply understand that there must have been a creator. He's making an argument that every child understands and can understand that every house must have a builder, that every toy must have a maker. The idea that there's something behind this. And he says that can be seen. You know, it's like if you, if you were to walk down the um, Cranes Beach in the summertime or Hampton Beach in the summertime when they have the, after they had their sandcastle contest. Anyone ever been there, seen the sandcastles they do? Pretty amazing. I mean, amazing stuff that they're able to do. But if you were, you know, alone at the end of the day and you happen to be walking down the beach and, you know, you're just looking at the beach and suddenly you come across these beautiful and gorgeous sandcastles. Paul is saying, it's a simple argument, maybe too simple for some people, but it's a simple, he's just saying, you know, you come across something like that, you're just going to assume somebody made it. That, 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 that you're not going to come across that and think, wow, isn't this wonderful? That, that, that the time and tide and wind and everything kind of came together to, to carve out and to build up this beautiful sandcastle and, and maybe some birds pecked out some small spots there and, and, and the wind kind of blew in this direction and that direction and created these castles. That none of us would ever say that. We would all would say, wow, look what somebody built. And yet Paul is just simply saying that isn't it the same when we look at the most complicated thing we know, when we look at the world around us, when we look at our own bodies, and the more that scientists study our own bodies, uh, they they look into everything, the minutia of the cell and, and everything else, to be able to say how incredible it is that there must have been someone who designed it. Every child is taught from a very early age that every effect must have a cause, except when they get older, and we say to them, or, you know, some say to them that this incredible effect that you see around you, this world, this life, that doesn't have a cause. That for some reason, that's an exception to the rule. Paul's just saying, everyone has some knowledge of God. And there are many atheists and many scientists who do not believe and do not follow God, but will at some level say, there must have been something or someone. Because I can't, it takes so much faith to believe that this came about by chance. There must have been something or someone, even though they may not admit that it is God. So everyone has this knowledge, Paul has, Paul says. Everyone at some point, some level kind of understands that there must be something. But what we do with that knowledge is really what Paul's talking about. And here's how the story goes. He says, in light of this knowledge, people will go their own way and live in godless wickedness, suppressing the truth. Godlessness and wickedness, we might think he's just adding emphasis there, but they're two very different words and have two very different meanings. Godlessness is against God and wickedness is against man. With this little knowledge we have, we end up living in what Paul calls godless and wicked lives. 
godlessness is against God, that we live in a way that is not in line with God. We live in a way as if God doesn't exist. We make ourselves the highest law of the land, and we have enough trouble figuring out how to not, how to not hurt one another that oftentimes, even with a knowledge of God as designer, we will never consider how not to hurt God. The Ten Commandments, probably if people don't have much knowledge of the Bible, at some point they may have come across the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are broken up and divided into two sections pretty clearly. The first four have to do with our relationship with God. The last six have to do with our relationship with each other. What Paul is basically saying here is that even though there's some general knowledge of God left to themselves, left to ourselves, apart from the gospel, we'll end up in, against God. The first four commandments, the first four commandments we will, completely, uh, we will completely ignore and not pay attention to. The commandments of not having any other gods before me, not creating idols, not taking the Lord's name in vain, and remembering the Sabbath. So here's the thing. Because because here's what here's what happens. In our world, we might get to the fact where we might say, Look, I'm not hurting anyone. I'm not wicked. I'm not that second one. I'm not involved in wickedness. I'm not hurting anyone. Or this isn't hurting anyone. So what does it matter? What Paul is saying is there's another aspect that's godlessness that's a problem. Because we might have a knowledge that there's a God out there and we might have this thing within us that doesn't want to hurt people because we don't want to be hurt. But what we will never get to is the place that says, how could I not hurt God? What we will never get to, apart from God's revelation and the gospel of Jesus Christ, is how to live for God. You just turn on a television those that don't live for God, have, they may have some conscientious idea of morality towards one another and some good moral lesson at the end of a movie or a television show, but they will have no problem taking God's name in vain. They will have no problem certainly setting up idols or putting things before God because that's not their morality. So what Paul is saying is that ultimately, even with some knowledge of God, we're all going to become guilty Godlessness doesn't hurt anyone but God. And this smacks against our thoughts of morality in our world. In our world, when right and wrong is simply measured by questions of does it make me happy and does it hurt anyone? If I answer the first question with yes and the second question with no, then it must be fine to do it. That's living with godlessness. When those are the only two questions I bring to my moral acts... Does it make me happy? And does it hurt anyone? Yes, it makes me happy. No, it doesn't hurt anyone. God must be okay with it. What Paul is saying is you're missing a part of holiness when you act like that, when when we consider that, that we're missing something. We've become the measuring stick for all morality, not God. We are living as if God doesn't exist. And if his thoughts on the matter are irrelevant or can't be known, we're both. We hear this argument often in our world, and if we're not careful, we can be swayed by it. Well, they're not hurting anybody. Well, it doesn't hurt anybody, so it must be okay. 
What we often fail to recognize is that it comes straight from a humanistic reasoning that has taken God off the throne and put humanity upon it. It's godlessness. And so what Paul is making this argument, and, and don't hear me saying, well, it's those people out there. What Paul is saying is that it's us people in here. That apart from the gospel, this is where we all end up. We all end up in godlessness and wickedness. Wickedness is the last six commandments. The last six commandments against uh, against each other. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. That's how we relate to one another. Paul says that left to ourselves, even with some knowledge that there must be a God somewhere, we will eventually end up in wickedness, hurting each other apart from the gospel. Apart from, I, I might hope for a win-win all the time, but apart from God, if I can get what I want, Without hurting anyone, that's great. But if something I want is going to hurt someone, at some point someone's going to make the decision to hurt someone else in order to get what they want. So that's wickedness. Paul says, apart from the gospel, here's where you are. You are godless and you are wicked. And this is why God's wrath is poured out. Because this is what happens. What will keep you from hurting one another? Well, the law. Well, whose law? Whose law? What becomes the law, apart from God, it's just the best of our human thinking at that moment, and too often it reflects the desires of the lawmakers and simply systematizes the whole problem. Pastor Tim Keller points out that there were laws on the books for years protecting the enslavement of Africans. Those were laws that were on the books, those were laws that were rightly upheld. Those were laws that humans, you know, living at that time thought, well, these are right and good. And yet those are laws that, apart from the gospel, apart from God, they, they resulted in wickedness, hurting one another. Because which, whose law is going to trump? When we separate ourselves from a morality based in a creator... We leave ourselves subject to what the best thoughts are of the people that are in power. So we end up in godlessness and wickedness. Left to ourselves, the best we will come up with in morality is what makes the most people the most happy most of the time and hurts the least number of people. We won't take into account what makes God happy and what hurts God. But here's the thing, morality apart from God will never make sense to the person who does not recognize and live for God. And morality against God will never make sense to the person living for God. We're coming from two different perspectives. And for some reason, I think those of us who are Christians sometimes forget this. One reason might be in our effort to try and make biblical morality make sense to people who don't have a biblical worldview, who don't follow God or even believe in God, we've given the wrong and maybe incomplete basis for morality. So it, let me give you a real-life situation. You're at work, and somebody asks you, well, what's wrong with 
fill in the blank, any moral scriptural issue that, that you believe you know, the, is, is clearly against scripture and our society is okay with. Well, what's wrong with? I don't know. Your coworkers are asking you. Maybe it's abortion. Maybe it's divorce. Maybe, you know, maybe it's something else. What's wrong with it? Doesn't hurt anybody? It's their decision. And so I think what we have done at times is because we know they're not going to accept the answer, well, the Bible says, because that's not their morality, that's not their worldview, that's not their basis for living their life, we come up with other arguments that they might believe. This is done not only on a personal level, but on a macro level in our legislature where people will try and lobby the legislature in more of a way in line with the scripture, but they're not going to go to a senator often and say, well, the reason you should vote this way is because the Bible says if that senator doesn't have a biblical worldview, they're not going to listen to another word you say. So what we do is we come up with good reasons why the Bible says this. So the Bible says this, you know, we, we won't say that. We'll say, well, look, this is what divorce does to families. This is what, this is what it does to kids. This is what it does to, to the future. This is what it does to society. It's not good. It's not good for our society. It's not good for kids. It's not good for everyone involved. And so this is why you should vote against it. Here's what abortion does. Here's a picture of the ultrasound. Here's a picture of, of the baby. Here's a picture of the beating heart. Here's a, you know, this is what it does. This is what an abortion looks like. And here's why you should be, you know, th- th- not in favor of it. So we make, you may make those arguments and you're not going to say the Bible says. And that's right and good and wise to do that. That's wise. I would do the same thing with my friends. You know, I may eventually get to, look, this is what I believe in the Bible, but I'm going to use those arguments that they will listen to to try and influence them on the opinion. But here's, here's the problem. Here's where I think it's become a problem for us. What happens is when we're presenting the gospel, we end up using the same arguments And instead of saying, when we present the gospel, well, this is against God and his word, and that's why it's wrong, we will say things like, well, it's not good for society, it's not good for your family, it's not good for your future. And so the basis of decision completely becomes, does it make me happy and does it hurt anyone else? And if it makes me happy and it doesn't hurt anyone else, God must be okay with it. And I think we have at times contributed to this mindset by not encouraging and not imploring people to say, look, we're all condemned to godlessness and wickedness apart from the gospel. That's the truth of it. So we can make those arguments when you're trying to influence your friends that don't know Christ on a particular topic, but it is not the foundation for why we need the gospel. It is not to make us happier. It is not to make society happier. It is not, to, it's not for that. It's because we need a savior to save us from our sins. And so I'll have those arguments and I'll have those conversations with anyone. But if we bring people into the faith under the mindset of it's just to make you happy and make you feel better, well, they're going to constantly bring that into all their decision making. This doesn't make me happy, so God must be against it. This, this does make me happy, so God must be for it. And I'm just saying that's not always true. And I think the Bible is saying that's not always true. 
we have to be careful about promoting such a mindset. Let me, I got to move on quickly. Um, Bottom line, here's the bottom line of what Paul's saying. Apart from Jesus, we don't have enough knowledge to save us, just enough to condemn us. That's what Paul's saying here, bottom line. Apart from Jesus and the gospel, Paul's saying, you have a general knowledge. You just don't have enough knowledge to save you. You have enough knowledge to condemn you. You have enough knowledge to say that, yes, there was a God, there is a God, there's probably a designer, but not enough knowledge to worship him and glorify him as God and call on him as your savior. And you say, well, that's unfair. That's the aspect of the sinfulness in us. That's why God sent Jesus. That's why the church exists. That's why we send missionaries all around the world because we want them to have this knowledge. That's why we will take three Sundays in October to talk about missions. That's why we will send hundreds of thousands of dollars around the world every year and and preferably even more to get the gospel out because we believe that apart from God, everything under heaven that's not under the gospel is under God's wrath. And so we believe that the gospel needs to get out and needs to be in people's hearts. Because apart from Jesus Christ, you have just enough knowledge of God to condemn you. That's the reason we're without excuse. The result of us being without excuse, chapter 1, 21 through 24, I'll read it for you quickly. For although they knew, they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts became I'm sorry, I gotta go back. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity and the degrading of their bodies with one another. What Paul is saying here is that this is just the pattern that is followed. And it's not that hard to look at our world and just see, well, maybe this is what happened. Maybe we knew God, and, but stopped glorifying him as God, stopped giving thanks and gratitude, and our thinking becomes futile and foolish hearts are darkened and they claim to be wise and become fools, and maybe we exchange glory for the immortal God for images that look like more. I mean, if you just look at our society and our world, it's like, well, that's a pattern that seems to be possible. That we go from knowing God to worshiping things that are made by God. And maybe it's not reptiles, but maybe it's human intellect. Maybe it's education. I remember walking through Harvard with my, with, with my son one day and him asking me the question, how did it go? Because he knew the story. How did this place that was founded to train missionaries and pastors become a place that is so anti-God today? And my only answer was, at some point, we think we're smarter than God. And we change the way we believe. At some point, we start worshiping something other than God. Somewhere along the way, we worship something other than God. And you say, but how can so many smart people be fools? Paul's not saying they're not smart. 
Not saying it's not about intellect, it's not about smart. Paul is talking in the way that the Old Testament talks, that the fool says in his heart that there's no God. It's not that you're not smart. Look, I meet some of these people that are doing some incredible work, and you look and you say, these people are doing incredible work. They're incredibly intelligent. I think of some of the people down at Dana-Farber or some of the hospitals in Boston or some of the companies that are just studying and the way they take apart the cell and DNA, and they, you know, they're able to isolate every gene and isolate like every single part of the, the, the human genome, and you can tweak this and tweak that. I'm going, these are incredible. I don't have that kind of intellect. I don't have that kind of smart. They can tell me what they're doing, and I have no idea what they're talking about. They're smart people. Paul's not talking about that. Paul's saying, if you look at all creation, and if you can look at all that and say that there's no God, he's just saying, that's foolish. That's foolish. So they claim to be wise, but they end up being fools. I'm just saying, maybe this is a pattern you see. I don't have to explain it and go through it. You can see it and look at it and say, yeah, that, that seems to happen. And that's all Paul's saying is this is what happens. This is what happens. It happens in our world. So what happens after that? They exchange the glory of the immortal God to look like mortal human beings. They give themselves God gave them over in sinful desires their heart. And here's the, here's the part of this chapter that probably if no one knows anything about Romans chapter 1, they know that these verses are in here. Romans chapter 1, verses 25 and following says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones in the same way the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion furthermore since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but approve of those who practice them. Paul is simply saying there is none that is righteous. I said most people know this part of chapter 1 if they know no other part because it's been arguments so often around uh, homosexual debate and all of that. And I think sometimes we miss the point of this chapter when we focus in on that one thing that Paul's talking about. Because what Paul is really saying is this is just where everything goes. This is just the natural progression And many people today, without an understanding of history, think that we have somehow moved in some way, some place that history has never gone. It's just not true. Paul in Rome, read it. Look at the history of Rome. Look at what was going on in that empire. Homosexuality was not unknown at all. It may have been more prevalent than it is in our society now. It may have been more accepted than it is in our society, in our world. In fact, almost, you know, you look at the majority of Roman emperors and they had homosexual relationships. It was not something that Paul was unfamiliar with. 
And even the idea of a long-term monogamous homosexual relationship was not something unfamiliar to Paul and his world. He understood it. And all he's saying is, look, this is the natural progression. Here's where it goes. If you're going to take God out of the equation, if you're going to stop thinking and worshiping God, here's where it goes. And I'm not going to take a whole lot of time on, on the topic of homosexuality. We took some time in November and did a series on that. And there's a sermon in that series if you want to hear more about that. I think it was the longest sermon I ever preached when we addressed that topic in November. So I'm not going to be able to address it in just a couple minutes here. But I encourage you to go back in November, get the podcast of that message that treats that topic more fully. But what Paul is saying is, look, all these sins, deceit, disobeying parents, all these things come about when you just take God out of the equation. It's wickedness and godlessness that happens when you take God out of the equation. And so he says, God gave them over. And this is where sometimes I think we miss that part of the passage, especially people who have a problem with this passage or have a problem with Christianity because of what it says in this passage. I would say, you don't have to have a problem with this. It's just God. It's, everyone gets what they want. Everyone gets what they God says, if this is what you want, I'll give you over to this. You can have it, but there's where it goes. He gives them over to it. This is, this is what you want. You can go down that road. But what Paul is saying is down that road, we're all condemned and we're all under God's wrath. Let me just, I'm wrapping it up here. He closes with the statement of, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. And maybe this is, one of the more convicting places for many of us. How would we get to the place where we approve of those who practice them? And maybe we should consider what we consider entertainment when we consider anything entertainment that um, clearly is against God's word and we are entertained by it, we give our money to it. We support it. Would it be under this category of approve of those who practice that? It's something to consider in the way that we live our lives and in our world. Last week, I was in a car, and I turned on the radio and just turned a, I don't know what to say, a song came on, and I was just in the mood to just hear something like upbeat, turned on a radio station. I, you know, figured usually plays upbeat songs. And my daughter was in the back. And at one point in the song, it said something about my God. And, and it wasn't in a worshipful sense. Uh, and I thought, ah, I hope she doesn't hear that. Uh, but my daughter hears everything. Um, and so, you know, Bella says, is this a Christian song? And I said, no. And I just thought, well, that'll be the end of the conversation. And she said, because I thought I heard him say, my God. And I said, okay. I said, you did. I said, but not everybody uses, you know, my God in a way that is in a worshipful way, in a way that it should be used. And it just kind of, you know, for a moment just reminded me of, okay, you know, I've got to be 
what am I teaching? What am I, what am I promoting? I can't protect her from all of that that's going to happen and she's going to hear. But it did kind of remind me of this verse. Approve of those who practice them. Do I get my entertainment from people who intentionally live lives disobedient to God? Something to ask ourselves. So this is the path of people apart from God. Paul is simply saying this is how it happens apart from God. It's just the way it is. There's no exceptions. Everyone's without excuse. We think we're progressing past religion. Much of our world sometimes thinks that Romans, as we go through it, will say that's just not the case. It was a very progressive world at that time. David Brooks, writer for the New York Times after September 11th. He said, like a lot of people these days, I'm a recovering secularist. Until September 11th, I accepted the notion that as the world becomes richer and better educated, it becomes less religious. This theory holds that as history moves forward, science displaces dogma and reason replaces unthinking obedience. It's now clear that the secularization theory is untrue. David Brooks, not a Christian, writer for the New York Times, just this realization that we think we can progress past these things. And much of our world thinks, well, there's a time where we won't need religion. We often find is when you remove the undercurrent, the moorings, that eventually the whole fabric unravels. That eventually the whole fabric comes apart when there's nothing to support it. All Paul is saying is that this is what happens with people and with societies. We can see it happen again and again throughout history. The only question that remains is a moral one. Do we see it as bad or good? Is it progress or is it devolving in our minds and actions? What Paul is saying is that left to ourselves, we won't see this as bad. Don't. Don't be surprised with the morality of the people in your life that do not have a Christian or biblical worldview find things that you find uh, strange or things that you find wrong. Don't be surprised when they find them as completely acceptable. It's a completely different underpinning, a different worldview. So what Paul is saying is that left to ourselves, we won't see this as bad. The things he just laid out, many people will say, we don't see this as bad. Well, yeah, maybe a few of them, but not all of them. What Paul is saying is left to ourselves, we won't see this as bad, but with Christ, we can't see it as good. And that's what he's saying, that when you come to Christ, you need the gospel to redeem you. And when you come to Christ, you'll see things completely differently. So you can't expect those without a biblical worldview or morality to see things the same way. Paul's writing to Christians, remember, I think the challenge for us is this, as we close out this message this morning, is it is so easy to come to Romans chapter 1 and point the finger someplace else. It is so easy to come here and start thinking about someone else who's, you know, fits one of these tags and put one of these tags on. That's not what Paul is writing this for. Paul is writing this to show that all have fallen short of God's glory. That all people apart from the gospel 
are worthy of God's wrath, that anything under heaven and not under the gospel is subject to God's wrath. The challenge is to come to Romans 1 and say, oh my God, this is me saved for the grace of God. That, oh my God, I am in need of your grace. That I am in need of you because this is me apart from you. That's the challenge of the gospel. That's the challenge of Romans chapter 1. Not to go find someone else and point the finger at someone else and say, oh, someone else is so bad apart from God. Of course they are. They're apart from God. That's exactly what Paul said would happen. It's not a surprise. It's no surprise when sinners act like sinners. There's no surprise. Shouldn't be a surprise. Paul is saying we're all guilty. In the next couple chapters, we'll see that some more. Because he's going to say to the Gentiles, you're guilty. He's going to say to the Jews, you, you think you're good. You're not. And eventually we'll get to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have fallen short of God's glory. And we're all in need of his gospel to save us. Let's pray. Father, Lord, this is a hard text. This is a hard passage. It's not a popular one in our day and age. It's not popular to say that we're guilty. It's not popular to say that we need you. It's not popular to say that we fall short. But Lord, it's true. And if we're going to believe your word, we have to believe all of it, Lord. So Lord, I pray that this morning we would understand. We would have an understanding of why we need you so much, Lord. We would have an understanding of this communion table that we celebrated this morning. Why we need the blood of Jesus Christ. Why we need a sacrifice. That apart from you, we are completely lost. And any good that is within us is only for the grace, because of the grace of God. The truth is, we are not completely bad in every area, but we can never be completely good in any one area. And so we need Jesus Christ. We need you, Lord. Help us, Lord, to understand and to know that, Lord. Help us to embrace this. And I pray that messages like these this morning will help us all the more recognize how much we need you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that the story does not end there, but that you have provided hope for us in Jesus Christ. Thank you. Amen.